The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Overview simplified now, but you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to welcome back my dear friend Dr. Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you. Thank you, Andrew, and Happy New Year. Thank you, Peter. Happy New Year. And um, the title of today's show is The Real Story of Why We Think As We Do. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with this today? There's nothing really more important than making sure we're thinking straight. And we seem to be living in a very confused world where people can't even think straight. And um, I had, for example, Dr. R.C. Sproul make a comment to me some time ago that we could be living in the dumbest generation in history. He said, don't let all the technology fool you. Uh, Computers don't make up for a loss of character and doesn't provide common sense necessarily. And uh, the, the example he gave is that in the past, centuries ago, you needed to be able to debate in Latin to enter university. So debating in Latin was basic entrance requirement for university. Today we have remedial English for those in university. In fact, you have remedial English even for some people who graduates of some universities. And that's a bit disturbing. In the past, uh, car manuals used to give instructions on how to adjust uh, timing and cam belts and spark plugs and so on. And uh, now uh, manuals include such incredible insights as do not warning do not drink contents of battery acid and uh, you would think well that's pretty serious you can go to a toy shop now and they've got on these superman and spider-man suits warning does not enable wearer to fly and then you can buy a bag of peanuts and it's got warning may contain nuts Uh, you buy a sleep aid sleeping tablets in america and it's got warning may cause drowsiness. Well, that's why we're buying it, isn't it? So uh, we, we live in a pretty dumb society where on a chainsaw, they've got a big yellow sticker, warning, do not attempt to stop with hands. So we've gone from a situation where most people used to be very self-sufficient. And you think of the pioneers that uh, settled America and Australia, and you think of the four trekkers who settled South Africa. These are people who made everything themselves, <laughs> everything from fixing their wagons, um, shoeing their horses, milking the cows, um, making everything that they needed from the soap and the candles uh, all the way through uh, knitting, fixing, uh, making rafts to get their wagons across rivers and 
These are basic skills that almost every individual had, and the people were capable of doing quite a lot of things. I went to school in Rhodesia where our schooling included things like bushcraft, survival, tracking, anti-tracking, direction finding, day or night, um, tracking your distance by the stars, and um, how to track different animals and recognize the different spore of animals. This was part of our schooling. One of our textbooks was Don't Die in Ubuntu, and we were expected to be capable of doing all sorts of things so that every Rhodesian was expected to know how to handle firearms and to be able to survive in the bush and to be able to defend themselves. And uh, that was considered normal. So what are we doing? Why are we thinking like we are? And why is it that you try to have a discussion with some people and they can't even think rationally? They cannot even argue or discuss the merits of things in the light of different views. They just shout slogans at you. And uh, I think going very basic is why we think as we do. And we need to understand that. There's a whole lot of things that come together as to why we think as we do. There's hereditary issues. There's the culture you brought up and the family you brought up and the national political situation which you grew up, the education you received, entertainment you choose, uh, music films and so on, relationships you have, your personal choices, very important. And, of course, there's revelation from God. Now, we're told in the scripture, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in a seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now that's Psalm 1. And you can see that it's so important what counsel we receive, what company we keep. A bad company ruins good character. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fact. So we are warned in Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, not to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we may be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We warned in Colossians 2, 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So all of us have a worldview. Everyone, whether consciously or unconsciously, we're influenced, whether consistently or inconsistently, by our worldview. And our worldview is that set of presuppositions or assumptions which we have about reality in the world, which may be true, which may be partially true and partially false, which could be totally false. But our worldview determines our values. It influences how we think and therefore it guides how we live. Now, if you are so hit by cancel culture, BLM, guilt manipulation, gaslighting, Stockholm syndrome, that you think the most important thing is uh, gender affirming surgery or uh, you think the most important thing is the LGBTQ or the critical race theory or whatever is the latest fad out there, then you might find yourself in a situation where you find some people you've tried to talk sense to where they, they can't think of anything. Their family relationships, national identity, nothing matters as much as this issue. You know, whether you're talking about the, the generation extinction, climate alarmist characters who think it's a clever thing to glue yourself uh, to the 
road uh, in the middle of traffic. And um, we think that destroying irreplaceable art in museums is a, is a good idea because they believe that the world's coming to an end in the next four or five years because of uh, their so-called, whether it's global warming or whatever the new variation is of this climate alarmism. And therefore, nothing else matters. And it doesn't matter how many people are inconvenienced. They could be blocking an ambulance, taking a person to life, saving surgery. Um, but they are so influenced by these things. And why do they think like this? Well, we, we need to understand that um, traditionally, the way and reason why we think as we do is our genetic makeup that we receive from our parents. So um, our hereditary traits, this is important. Demographics is destiny. And uh, there's certainly a factor that if you look, generally speaking, and there's always a few exceptions, but generally speaking, you look at people of different cultures and definitely um, you can see how uh, you can come out with almost a stereotype for how people of one group or another uh, behave. Now, just, I live in Africa, and uh, in Africa, there are some people in some climates where there's no seasonal change, really. I mean, you, around the equator, you can basically lie in a loincloth under a mango tree or banana tree, and, uh, you know, um, you don't need to build much shelter. You don't need to uh, worry about serious clothes because you're not going to have that serious change of weather patterns. It's not like you're living up in the Arctic Circle where if you don't work extremely hard, you will not survive uh, the coming winter. And you've got to build phenomenally strong uh, log cabins or whatever it, uh, is the place of, of uh, living in. And you've got an incredibly thick, warm clothing uh, and boots and so on, or you will die. Uh, some of the climate is so severe, you need phenomenal discipline and foresight to even survive. And so you can see amongst the Vikings and the Scandinavian people, of course, a certain traits of work ethic developed, which you won't find in the Pacific uh, islands where the people can sit on a paradise island uh, eating coconuts and bananas without any real need for worrying about um, shelter, um, clothing and, and so on, That's or, or stockpiling food because the food's available all year round anyway. And uh, these things do affect you. And over the centuries, there's no doubt that that different uh, groups, tribes, nations have a genetic makeup which influences them to some degree. So why do we think like we do? Well, to some extent, it's your parents and grandparents. Um, the culture as well, the system of moral and aesthetic values in a society in which we live. So I grew up in a society where discipline, uh, uh, keeping in line, keeping quiet new lining into class, uh, hands out of pockets, um, hair cut neat, never touching your ears, never over your collar, inspection, uh, discipline, corporal punishment, not only the teachers at corporal punishment powers, the prefects and the other students at corporal punishment powers over us. We got caned for doing anything that we might have done wrong or maybe we didn't even do something wrong. Uh, we still got, got discipline and it, it instilled in us a certain kind of, of behavior and and the ideals lifted up before us were not just on the walls, the names of the people who died in battle in the First World War, Second World War, and so on. It was at Milton High School in big wooden um, memorial honor boards. And uh, we had put before us 11th of November and um, giving your life for your country, due to honor country. These were key elements, and that certainly influenced me. My father served all six years, Second World War, in the Royal Artillery, uh, Eighth Army. And uh, my brother was in the Rhodesian army and grandparents were in all different wars. In fact, going back to the Napoleonic War, I think um, 
there were always Hammonds uh, and on my mother's side, Lindemans, who were in uniform. Um, male members were in uniform every generation um, fighting for one or the other cause. And so one of the ideals that I was brought up with was uh, uh, to serve in uniform and to fight and defend your country and uh, fight evil. And uh, that was part of, of the ethos in, in our ideals and our family. It was in the songs of Rhodesia. It was in the films we watched. It was uh, in the school textbooks. It was the stories we were told, uh, Alan Wilson's Shangani Patrol and uh, uh, Battle of Rooks Drift. And, you know, this was instilled into, into our way of thinking, our whole psyche. So your culture affects you. And we would be taken to uh, concerts and, of course, everything from Strauss's Blue Danube and Mozart. Uh, these were um, the ideals, uh, Handel's Messiah and uh, and so on, Bach, um, Johann Sebastian Bach's musical compositions. These were the gold standard. This was what was considered um, uh, beautiful and uh, the art, uh, the culture, the music, and different traditions were taught to us like ballroom dancing, which teach chivalry and, and the way you deport yourself and behave and how you respect women. And part of the culture I was brought up in was if a woman walks in a room, you stand up. And uh, if they bring a tray and you immediately go and take the tray and help, uh, uh, so they might have made the tea and coffee and so on, but it's your job as a male to take the tea uh, tray around. And that's still in our culture. And you tip your hat to any woman. Um, and uh, in fact, when we were at school, it didn't matter if you were a high school senior and that was a primary school little girl, you tipped your hat. You always gave up your chair to an older person, to uh, a woman, and and so on. So you were always respectful. So you might be a senior in high school, but a, a junior girl is there from primary school. You give your seat to her on the bus or wherever it is. You've you've got to show chivalry. These are some of the things that that I was brought up in, and that culture affects the way I think. Of course, people today are brought up with a different kind of culture, and you can see how that affects them. Uh, your family, your upbringing, your events relationships. Uh, my parents were strict and they were very reserved and didn't express much emotion. And I must say there was not much uh, outward expression of emotion in my family. Um, if somebody in the family died, if we lost a beloved pet, um, individuals would go to the room, shut the door and cry on their own. There was no um, open uh, compassion uh, amongst ourselves. We were stiff up lip and, and, um, cool, calm and collected and you didn't wear your feelings on a sleeve and you hid it even from your own family. Probably wasn't a healthy part of our upbringing, but that was part of it too. The relationships we have, the events, and of course in our family, Christmas was super important and uh, uh, other major events like that. So what we also affected by is not just our genetic makeup from what our hereditary uh, lineages, uh, demographics, but our culture and our family, but then there's also the national events. Political developments and crisis situations affect each one of us. Now, my father grew up during the Depression. That affected the way he saw things. You know, you didn't leave uh, one pea or grain of rice on your plate because people died of starvation and you had to appreciate the value of food. And uh, my grandmother, who went through all the Great Depression of the Weimar Republic and worse, and uh, absolute starvation during the Second World War. She couldn't bear you to throw food away. You, if you if you dish it up, you eat it all. Um, the crisis situations affect people. Uh, I grew up during the Rhodesian War and sanctions and boycotts and uh, international campaigns, terrorism, 
uh, traveling on the roads where ambushes could take place. Obviously, that affects the way you think. The education received. Now, education is not just your formal education in the classroom at school, but your informal education at home. What you learned by example from your parents. And uh, I mean, it could be that your parents told you all the right things to do, but they didn't act it out. And I certainly noticed that while my parents were very adamant that I mustn't smoke, they smoked, um, they drank. Uh, we weren't allowed to until we were 18, but they certainly did. And uh, they gambled and they were they behaved very badly, it seemed, in the evenings when their friends were around. And there was all kinds of liquor flowing. And so, you know, I I'm, I'm, couldn't help but notice that these adults are basically having double standards. Um, so education is not just what you see or taught at school, it's what you see and experience at home as well. But then there's the entertainment. What music do you listen to? And I think a lot of what people listen to today is not really music, it's just noise. And uh, I don't understand how things like rap uh, can even be called music and hip hop. Um, a lot of it just sounds like gangster pimp noise. And some of it's got to damage your hearing just to start with. And we've heard that the Swedish military came to the conclusion that their national defense was undermined by the music their young people were listening to. They found that Soviet subs during the Cold War were able to breach through the defenses in naval harbors in Sweden and get out without being able to be caught because a thorough investigation found that the Swedish young people listening to such loud music, the hearing was damaged and they weren't able to discern the distinctions on the echo sounders adequately, and therefore their national defense was endangered by the music, which was so darn loud that had actually damaged the hearing of the young people. Uh, I, I think I understand that because I grew up in a rural type country, Rhodesia, where we had a very small population, very large area, uh, where there was a lot of wildlife, and my hearing was superb. Uh, I, I could sometimes discern, uh, you know, the footsteps long before anyone else in my tent could, and I could discern what, uh, whether it was male, female, young, old, or maybe even guess the person sometimes, if, if there's some characteristics like this person's particularly heavy and so on, uh, from the footsteps, I, I had excellent eyesight, excellent hearing. It, it didn't survive the army because too much explosions and um, uh, vast amounts of gunfire, and you didn't always wear proper ear protection, and you certainly couldn't on the border. So, um I found myself getting like my father after a while where, you know, pardon, sorry, say that again. I couldn't understand. I didn't hear you. And, uh, well, my dad was 25 pounders uh, artillery. You can imagine they certainly didn't have ear protection back in the Second World War. And so anyone you know who's gone through artillery, the hearing's not quite what it used to be. So your music affects you. The films you watch affect you. And the books you read and the things you do. I was once in... Sophie Bucharest, uh, uh, and Sophie in in um, uh, in, Hung, in Bulgaria, Sophie in Bulgaria, the capital of Bulgaria, and the person I stayed with had all kinds of bolts and padlocks, and I'd never seen so many locks, and uh, literally full on uh, bar across the door, uh, anchored into holders on the sides, and this is a normal home in an apartment, and I said, do you have a lot of crime in Bulgaria? And said, no, not really, but I read Stephen King novels. Well, okay, if you're going to read horror books like Stephen King, I suppose that would explain uh, having paranoia. Um, the books we read and the films we watch do affect us. And, of course, the things we do affect us. And 
people who have been hunters or golfers or fishermen or hikers, uh, they will find that their activities influence them and affect the way they think. Uh, of course, our relationships. Um, bad company ruins good character, um, but good friendships can really strengthen our character. And so the people we have as friends, the people we work with, the neighbors we have, and most importantly, the marriage partner we choose is going to have a profound impact on us. And relationships definitely affect us. And there are young people who get into bad relationships who might have turned out very well in life who end up being um, criminals and in gangs and into drugs, not because they wanted to, but because they chose those kind of friends who um, pressured them into it. And it's interesting that in English history, there used to be the press gangs where the Royal Navy could enlist people. And if the person didn't have any particular discipline in life and they were getting drunk in the pub or the bar and lying in the street, they were fair game to be picked up by the press gang and they would wake up on some vessel of um, His Majesty and they'd be sailing the seven seas and uh, flogged if they stepped out of line. And, you know, that sounds harsh and it sounds terrible. But to be honest, I've seen a lot of people whose lives were absolutely together when they were in the military. And there was a sergeant major telling them what to do, a corporal uh, watching out that they behaved themselves and so on. And, um, you know, some of these people were exemplary and they left the army uh, or in other cases didn't even get in the army and they wrecked their lives, absolutely destroyed their lives. And so some people need external discipline and it'll do them good. And others are self-disciplined so they don't really need it. Well, there's a lot of our young people littering the countryside and literally lying in their own vomit, uh, drug overdoses and drunk and so on, uh, having no purpose in life, body piercing, tattooing into gangs and so on, criminals, graffiti artists, so-called, uh, just polluting society, wrecking society, stealing uh, or uh, waiting for the next uh, uh, excuse to go and loot a whole lot of stores contributing nothing to society, not making anyone better off around them, who would be better off being press-ganged into the Navy or drafted into the Army. Um, I have a relative who, as a teenager, got into the wrong uh, groups and uh, company, and he ended up in drugs and crime. And he was, uh, as a youngster, hauled before a judge who was very wise, and this man said, you're either going to spend X amount of years in jail or you join the Marines. And he chose to join the Marines. And would you believe it? This young man has become such a pillar of society, such an exemplary person. I'm not saying I approve of the different wars he's been in, but personally, he has cleaned up, got married, children, discipline, risen in the ranks, smart, clean, neat, haircut, yes, sir, no, sir, obedient, respectful of authority. Going in the Marines did this man a world of good. I mean, he, he was on his way to becoming a drug addict criminal. And a wise judge drafted him or gave him the choice of drafting an army. And that was a good choice to choose the Marines over prison. Because who knows where he would have ended up if he came out after a few years in prison. So your choices are super important. Your relationships are important. But even after bringing all this up, I know people have had everything against them. I know people who don't even know who their parents were, who were brought up in foster homes, who were uh, institutionalized, who got into every kind of bad thing. Uh, I've got uh, close friends who their lives were ruined. Uh, one of our uh, good friends, he was in prison, sentenced to life in prison. Um, everything, every kind of crime he could have committed, every law of God he'd broken. And 
uh, he was heading for absolute disaster. I mean, how much worse can it get? You end up in, in crime and now you're in prison for life. And revelation, the revelation of God, the grace of God reached him in prison. He was converted to Christ. He became a trophy of grace. He served the Lord in prison. He won souls in prison. He is now an accomplished father, just celebrated his 60th birthday, uh, still faithful to his wife of over 30 years, uh, daughters have great careers, um, uh, one even in law. He said she decided to follow the family tradition of going into law. She just thought she'd go the other direction to her dad. And everyone was going, ooh, that's pretty mean. But uh, a pillar of society, missionary, minister, leader, great testimony. But his life was wrecked by his 20s, destroyed, no hope. But God reached him and changed him. And this, this gives us hope. So sometimes you can think, you know, I've made bad choices, lots of bad choices. <laughs> I've made a mess of my life. I'm in a, I've allowed the world to brainwash me through government indoctrination, the gulags. I've allowed the me media uh, to disinform me, and I, my mind's full of lies. And I've allowed Hollywood to defile me with all their filth and garbage and horror slasher films and occultic junk. And uh, I'm in a mess. And I've even eaten junk food, and my body's a mess, and I've been smoking and drinking, and my liver's wrecked, and my kidneys are wrecked, and I don't know how many brain cells I've destroyed, and I, I know people like that too, who God reaches down and transforms them, and by regeneration and repentance, and by uh, seeking to follow the Lord, and, and wise discipleship, these people's lives get so transformed that you, when you meet them, you would never believe when they tell you, I used to be a drug-dealing armed robber, criminal, uh, in prison, and so on. And you're like, you look at them and think, how is that possible? I mean, this person looks like the pillar of society. But remember, the Bible's full of people that God reached down and, and transformed. And the Bible's not only got the Davids, it's got the Samsons. It's got uh, the Saul of Tarsus, persecutors of the church. It's got all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, uh, whether it's Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector. God can take all kinds of people and transform them. And uh, there's even a Rahab in the lineage of Jesus. Uh, there's uh, a Ruth, a Moabites, who, who is in the lineage of our Lord. And we, we must not put limits on the grace of God and recognize that through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, and through the church and through ministries, you can have people who are in the gutter, who are able to be lifted up to being trophies of grace. And I know that, of course, I also know people who were living in the most privileged suburbs in our city, who had everything going for them, who ruined their lives and allowed drugs and everything else to destroy them. So, for example, there's, there's one man I know, uh, he comes to our gate sometimes and uh, are begging and you know, we let him have a shower and get cleaned up and give him some coffee and food. And uh, I've tried to help him before. Um, we don't seem to be able to help him that much. We out. I once led this man to the Lord on the street, I thought, uh, doing an outreach in Claremont, and uh, brought him from the streets, got him cleaned up uh, at our mission house, uh, showered and so on, and we got him some clothes, decent clean clothes, took him out to a mission base nearby where they help people rehab from drugs and so on. He wasn't even there a day, not even a day. He said, I love my sin too much, I'm not willing to give up my drugs, and uh, he wanted to be taken back to the city. And we still see him on the streets. Well, what makes it even more disturbing is that I know his brother 
his brother's a super successful businessman. I mean, a, a very successful, wealthy businessman living in one of the most prestigious suburbs in the country. And uh, I've spoken to him about his brother who comes to our gate and, and he says, I've helped him so many times. Uh, I will not give him another cent. Uh, it just goes to vice. I'm not, uh, it's, I cannot continue to feed his vice, his drugs, his drink and everything else. And so, uh, no. Um, and how tragic is that? So you've got two brothers came from the same home, same privileges, opportunities. One succeeds and the other one ends up literally lying in the street, sometimes in his own vomit. And uh, as an evangelist, sorry to mention things like that, but I'm afraid as, as a missionary, I have spent a lot of time uh, walking the streets in the early hours, picking up people, literally physically carrying people uh, to where they can be cleaned up and, and so on, having them vomit down my back and uh, getting them in the shower, cleaning them up. And in the morning, they can't even remember anything. But I remember that too in the army. I remember some of these people that... Uh, they sat in the same chaplain service as I did, but they got drunk of their minds. And um, uh, you asked them in, on the next morning, do you remember what happened last night? No idea. But it was great. How do you know it's great? Oh, you know, I've got this massive headache and uh, withdrawal symptoms and all the rest the next day. And, he's, and, you know, do you know I saw you lying in your vomit and I carried you in and cleaned you up in the showers and put you to bed? Do you remember? doesn't remember a thing. Uh, just woke up and he's got this massive headache. And how tragic. Well, that's just another reason why I never touch alcohol. I've never drunk a drop of alcohol in my life. I grew up seeing my parents abuse it. I saw my brother abuse it. I saw people around me and uh, everything I saw in the army and the fire brigade just entrenched in me this idea. I will be a lifelong teacher. I never want to touch alcohol. It can turn normal, sane, decent people into idiots. And I've seen too many adults behaving like imbeciles after taking too many swigs. And uh, I know there's people who don't abuse it, who just have one glass of wine and, and they don't uh, get drunk and don't abuse. Um, I'm not saying that you can't have alcohol without abusing. Um, the Bible's certainly against drunkenness. And um, therefore, uh, I don't even want to take the first sip. I'm not blaming people who do choose to take some. But I've just seen so much abuse. And in Africa... We actually have the principles in our churches, even the Presbyterian churches. Um, you'll get excommunicated two years uh, if you take a drop of alcohol. They will not allow alcohol uh, to be used. And you may say, you know, well, that's not biblical because Jesus turned water to wine. And I'm not arguing that. But in Africa, there's been so much abuse of alcohol that our churches have almost universally across the board said, we won't tolerate alcohol. We won't tolerate a drop of it. And one you take one drop of alcohol, you will get excommunicated for two years. And that's and that's a church central African Presbyterian. That's the main church in Malawi has that rule, for example. But the reason is there's so much abuse, they've recognized that vast majority abuse it and are abused by it. And therefore, they think the best solution is don't have any of it. And um, living in the continent of Africa, I think that's a wise decision and certainly one that I've been led to take personally. But <laughs> there's no doubt... Uh, your company affects you. Now, why do we think as we do? There is no doubt at all. Some people think like they do because they've been guilt manipulated, because they've been, um, you could use the word gaslighted or Stockholm syndrome. They are being targeted, words are being weaponized, and people are being made to feel bad because of their 
ancestry, their heredity. But that's not biblical. In the Bible, the son is not to be punished for the sin of the father, nor is the father to be punished for the sin of the son. Uh, that each soul that sins, uh, he will pay the penalty. And it's it's a biblical principle. You don't blame anyone for what someone else did. And uh, uh, right now, there's a lot of people making political capital and making a lot of money out of guilt manipulation, whole peoples, and using it to enable them to shut down dissent or questioning of their behavior and the extortion, all the rest of it. Uh, I think it's so important to take control over how we think. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. <clears throat> Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how do we renew our minds? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's so important that we read the Bible, that we know our history, that we can recognize when we're being lied to, that we can know the truth so that we can be set free from the deceptions and the guilt manipulations of others who distort history. I mean, if you understand what really happened in the Crusades and why, and if you understand Islamic Jihad that it was reacting to, you won't be able to be guilt manipulated by people come out of the guilt of the Crusades. If you understand the reality of slavery, how it happened, who performed it, who brought it to an end, who campaigned to bring an end to the slave trade, you will not be manipulated by people who want you to pay reparations or be silenced because of something your ancestors two centuries ago fought to end. And you will not be impressed when you learn that many of the people who are trying to get you guilt manipulated about slavery, the slave trade that ended over two centuries ago, that is, that they have no problem with the slavery going on today. Like the human trafficking from Ukraine, which is one of the most corrupt countries in the world, and which leads the world in the amount of poor young girls trafficked into sex slavery worldwide. Uh, you won't be able to be guilt manipulated uh, by people who support Red China, who have the biggest slave industry around, and most of whose products are made with slave labor. And you will not be that impressed with people who are trying to guilt manipulate you about the slavery that ended two centuries ago, uh, when you realize that they still practice slavery in many Muslim countries today. And we as missionaries know these things. I mean, I've worked in those countries and I've seen the slaves and I've seen slaves being redeemed and I uh, cannot be guilt manipulated by people because I know my history and I know what's going on today. And so one way that we can think in a freer way is by knowing our history from a biblical point of view, not from the New World Order globalist point of view, by knowing the scriptures, knowing the laws of God and being right with God. Uh, and in this case, it's super important that we support home-based education, Bible-based education, um, education that is that has biblical content, which is moral, character-building, based on the facts of creation, rooted in the Ten Commands, true to Christian family values. And so supporting Christian schools, homeschooling, Christian teachers, Christian textbooks is a good way of trying to renew our minds and protect ourselves from having our thinking absolutely distorted and enslaved uh, by the globalist New World Order, order cancel culture crowd. And similarly with entertainment, we've got to take control of the TV and use the off button. I've gone one better. Since before I even got married, my wife and I decided we would not have a TV in our home. And what a blessing. 33 years, no TV in our home. Absolutely one of the best decisions we ever made. We saved ourselves no end of garbage and filth being poured into our homes. Um, we had more time to read and to invest in family and uh, museums and game reserves and hikes and outreaches and a whole lot of other very healthy things, which most people don't seem to have time for because they've got to watch the next edition of 
well, who knows what. Um, generally speaking, I, th I think it's a poor use of one's time. We need to cultivate the habit of reading good Christian books, and it's better to read those books that were written by people who helped build up civilization than watch the garbage from the people who are tearing down every single pillar of civilization, the people who are waging the war against the family and the war against males and the war against masculinity, the war against biblical standards, the war against morals, uh, the war against the womb, the war against children. Uh, why would we want to have our minds rearranged and defiled by people who hate Christianity, who blaspheme Christ, who hate our Christian standards and our, our great heritage and history? And so to read and to watch some of the great classics of history, uh, this can only renew and revive and improve and repair our minds, which have been damaged so much uh, by, uh, I'm afraid, the brain-numbing, um, culture-defiling garbage that's dished out by Hollywood and the so-called mainstream media and uh, oh, the, the so-called music industry, which is, in many cases, uh, nothing but noise and defilement. So we need to rediscover the joys of worship and fellowship and Bible study and Christian service and evangelism and reclaiming creation and caring for the environment, planting trees, rescuing animals, uh, doing something to make our world a better place. So there's a lot of things we could say on it. The Bible says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's vital that we know what we believe, that we know why we believe it, that we can defend it in argument, that we not conform to this world, that we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that we understand the times and that we know what God's people should do. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. It's interesting that you talk about um, never uh, having drunk alcohol and never having smoked because I've known you for um, many years. It's not something that I recall us talking about, but uh, I learned about this in between the last time that we spoke because I read your Frontline book um, over Christmas, as I said mm. I would, and you talk about that there. And I, 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 I want to share this uh, with you and the audience. Now, when I was um, a child, my real father left my mother when I was eight years old. And my mother told me throughout the years that all he was interested is in his drinks and his cigarettes and things like that. And consequently, I vowed that I would never drink or smoke. I um, stayed true to that until I went to university. So I'm 18 years old at that point. Um, I, I knew people younger than that that would get hold of alcohol. That There was even a time, I think I was only about 12, 13 or something, uh, and someone, I'll oh, have a bit of this cigarette. And I sort of pretended to smoke it. And that was that just to get them to go away, you know, you know friends of mine and what have you. Um, but I had a real hang-up about uh, being born with a hair lip and a cleft palate because I, I hadn't had plastic surgery at that point, so it was noticeable. And consequently, my life revolved around, you know, inadequacy that I didn't feel I was going to get a girlfriend or what have you. And that was what drove me. And uh, I went away to university in my first year. And I think if I hadn't have had that as a child, it wouldn't have bothered me. But I... Friends of mine at university, I lived in a hall of residence. There was about 50 of us there. I was the only one who didn't drink or smoke. Got there in the September time. Uh, and it got to about April the following year. 
and I was I I, I had a lot of friends there and uh, but they noticed I was getting more and more not withdrawn but they could tell that I wasn't really happy and uh, at one point they said oh why don't you just have a drink you know that help you relax and I was at the stage where this was long before I became a Christian I said well why not I'm not getting what I want anyway um and so I did and uh within a few weeks I was I started going out every night because I, I had quite a bit of money uh, as I wasn't using it like all the other students or most of the others on things like alcohol and going out when I went out for an evening you know you generally go on a student night where it was either free or cheap to get in and I might buy myself a coca-cola and that would be it and suddenly you're going out and drinking pint after pint of lager and it costs a lot more and what have you um within a few weeks someone offered me a cigarette while I was in one of these nightclubs and I was all happy I thought it'd be rude to refuse and then I started smoking when I was drinking and that ended up into smoking when I wasn't drinking and um, the whole thing sort of snowballed and I did actually meet my first girlfriend during that period of time that didn't last um, but I think I was so fearful in myself that that's how I ended up involved with um, alcohol and cigarettes fortunately I never uh, turned to any drugs but I wish to this day because I have stopped for a period of time uh, several periods of time in fact um, and I still drink and smoke now in a controlled way. I don't remember the last time I was drunk. would have been many years ago. But um, if, I had, if I could have just stayed how I intended, um, it would have been a far better life than I've got today, having not had a drink, my first taste of alcohol or cigarette, until I was 19 years old which anyone I've ever spoken to smokes can't believe I didn't start until I was 19 years old they all started much younger as did people who drink so I just wanted to share that with you Peter and um, ask for your comments yes again you just <laughs> illustrating the importance of the friends we choose and the friends we carry on with and it's so important that we build our lives on a rock of God's word instead of on the sand of human effort and trying to please people. <coughs> it's, it's, um, now I had an upbringing where you would have picked up now from my book. Um, I was such a withdrawn introvert, bookworm, animal person. I didn't really interact with people very well. And, um, well, to use the words of my wife, um, I was a social retard. Uh, but, uh, I, I didn't interact with people much at all. And most of my experience at school was of fighting bullies. So uh, it was only getting converted that changed me to actually interacting with people at all. And uh, at, at this point, you know, coming from a very introverted where I was, I, I felt sufficient in myself. I, I'd get lost in daydreaming and reading books and so on and uh, being with animals who were so much nicer to get on with. I mean, they, they weren't harsh. They weren't bullying. They, they were more accepting. Uh, I, I just found animals uh, uh, very pleasant to, to be around and to work with. So um, I was in a position where I wasn't affected by peer pressure. And so I could go into the army and have everybody in a bungalow outraged, furious, angry at me. It didn't bother me at all because at that stage I was a Christian and I was very confident in what I believed. And you know, everybody could hate me. It would not bother me at all. And in fact, sometimes they did. It was certainly seemed like they hated me <laughs> on occasion. Um, but in time, those very same people who hated me 
came to me when they had a problem. And next thing I found myself myself having people coming to speak about every kind of problem from their girlfriends uh, onto parents and, oh, my, um, heart-rending things. And a lot of these loud-mouthed characters who the, the big drinkers and so on, uh, many of them were quite sad, broken people inside, not that you'd have guessed it. But later, you know, when things went wrong and things fell apart, they turned to the Christian. And yes, they might have mocked me uh, at, at uh, the average time, but when they were in need, they knew the person they were going to go to is not their drinking buddies. The only person who would help them is the one who stood firm. Now, my wife is a people person. She is the friendly, outgoing, everyone liked her kind of person. And uh, I'm, I'm not that way. I'm not a people person. I'm a project person, um, book person, and so on. And so, um, nevertheless, the funny thing is, uh, um, and I, I try to impress this on my children, I uh, using my wife as an example, I said, so, Lenora, which of your friends when you were at school are you still in contact with? It turned out only one of all the vast amount of friends she had when she was at school. That includes primary school and high school. <laughs> she, there was only one that was still a friend of hers, one. Um, and uh, as she said uh, to our children, I was a party person. I was a people person. Don't go that way. It's it, you just waste your time. At the end of the day, family is so important and your principles are so important. Don't leave everything else for these friends. These friends will not be with you for life and they will not be with you in the worst times of life. You know, blood is thicker than water. Your family is so important. And there's other things more important. And I know people who made such life-changing decisions because of wanting to please someone. I mean, just an example. Uh, there's um, um, many examples I could give here. But young men going into the army, they want to be soldiers, they want to get to the border, they want to fight the enemy. But they've got a girlfriend who doesn't want them to be away for three to five months at a time. Sometimes we were on the border for up to five months without being able to get home. And so two years call up um, and uh, you could be away for months at a time. So naturally, um, girlfriends would put pressure on their boyfriends to uh, get a posting where they didn't have to go up to the border but where they could be home more often, like get a posting to a base near Cape Town, like Youngsfield or the castle, and um, uh, then they can be home every weekend and things like that. And uh, so uh, now the young men who they want to go in, into the army, they want to be in the infantry or paratroopers, they want to fight at the border. But to please their girlfriend and to be close to the girlfriend, they choose to go and they get a safe posting, more of a uh, administrative type of posting back at home instead of going up the border. Now, they have the fun in the short term of being close to home, family, comforts. They don't get in the same danger. But many of them regret for the rest of their lives that they let that girlfriend, who broke up with them somewhere along the line anyway, um, they let them talk them out of uh, going for what would have made it a far greater, more meaningful experience. Um, I know others uh, in missions who, there they were, determined missions, going to be missionaries, training, working. Uh, chap who was with me on my very first mission across the border into Mozambique. And uh, but then his girlfriend put pressure on him to to stay home, and uh, she even did a little spiritual trick. She had a uh, she laid a fleece before God. She said she entered a I mean houses for materialistic self-serving fleece. Um, she entered a competition where the prize was to win a city golf car, which 1981. That's like the latest thing that just came out from VW, the city golf, uh, and. Uh, uh, if she won this car, then she would know God wanted her 
boyfriend to continue in missions. And if she didn't win it, then it was God guiding that he shouldn't be involved and he should leave. Well, would you believe it? She didn't win this car. And so he stepped out of missions off his first mission to Mozambique. And there was every indication he's going to continue with me. And, uh, well, he never got back involved in missions for the rest of his life. He's with the Lord now. But uh, in order to please his girlfriend, he missed out on what God might have been calling him to, what may have fulfilled his life in, in other ways. There's people who let peer pressure talk them out of something important. And it's just so dangerous. So we've got to be so careful. Now, you don't have to be on a social retard extreme of the side like I was where I don't care what anyone thinks, and I'm just going to do what I believe is right, and uh, you might alienate a whole lot of people. Uh, but on the other hand, as my wife said, you pour your heart and soul into your school friends and all of that and college friends. They're not going to be there for the rest of your life. They're not going to actually have any involvement in your life. Most of them you won't even hear from again. And here you're making, you're making major life-affecting decisions to please people who are going to have no significant role in your life for most of your life. And... Uh, uh, you will regret it. So I think it's so important to resist peer pressure. The Bible speaks about the, the fear of man is a snare. We must not be people pleasers. And, um, of course, society encourages us to be like that. They want you to continue to be afraid of what people think. You know, that's how they get people to conform with everything from mask mandates through to social distancing and uh, vaccination mandates and everything else. A lot of it was peer pressure and uh, uh, manipulation. We've got to be able to say you know, here I stand, I can do no other, like Martin Luther did. And um, you also learn in Pilgrim's Progress, so wonderful how in Pilgrim's Progress, we we get these examples of all the distractions of worldly wise men and Vanity Fair and Bipart Meadow and Doubting Castle and Giant Despair. And we've got to watch out on our discipleship fork. There's all kinds of side paths to get you lost and to get you off the path. And there's so many Job's comforters and bad counselors who will talk you out of the right thing and talk you into the wrong. So um, a healthy dose of skepticism and a strong resilience. We need steel in our backbones and Holy Spirit fire in our bellies. We mustn't be those who just manipulate by others because um, I'm sure we both know a lot of examples of folks who've ruined their lives by doing so. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, um, very well said. And uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. I just wanted to uh, let the audience know, as I mentioned, I read Peter's wonderful book that I've been looking forward to uh, most of the year since I received it. I decided I was going to wait until I was at my mother's for Christmas, and that's what I did. It took me a few days to read Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. It's a biography of both Peter and Frontline Fellowship as a mission. And so you get to hear all the stories of the different missions that Peter's gone into that read like an adventure book, folks, because he's had all sorts of horrible things happen to him and all sorts of wonderful things happen, like being involved in the creation of South Sudan. How many uh, guests do you hear on uh, shows in the independent media or any media that have been involved in creating a country on this planet? Um I found it a riveting read. As I say, I read it over a period of uh, two or three days at uh, my mother's. Um, took me several hours to read. Very well worth uh, a read. Uh, and one of the things that touched me uh, was Peter's uh, childhood. He was very badly bullied, which I was unaware of. 
but he also had wonderful times, as he touched upon, with animals. And he, this is something that I kind of, the first thing I tell people about the book, I don't know if it's what Peter would want me to tell people about the book, but I've never known anyone who had a pet lion. But Peter, could you please share that with the audience? Because I don't know as do they have either. Over to you. It, it's, it's quite extraordinary. So my father was a hotel manager after he came out the military. And um, there was a Juliet Prowse. Juliet Prowse was some actress. And she starred in a film called Dingaka. And uh, this, the star of the show, um, animal-wise, was this little lion cub uh, called Dingaka, who turned out to actually to be a, um, a little girl, um, a lioness, not, not male. But anyway, uh, at the end of the film, uh, the filmmakers gave this lion cub to Juliet Prowse. And for whatever reason, whether she didn't want the lioness or she couldn't get the paperwork right as she flew back to um, England, I presume, um, she handed the lioness to the hotel manager, my father. Now, my father knew that his son was mad about lions. I always was lion obsessed uh, long before that too. This only entrenched so imagine my delight as a five-year-old when my father comes home with a lion, a real lion, and it's mine. And uh, I had months of absolute joy and fun of, of this lion being my very best friend. And, of course, you know, lions grow. <laughs> and so it wasn't long before this cub was bigger than me and uh, could flatten me with one pounce. And the neighbors were getting scared, I suppose, for their poodles or whatever. But sadly... Um, the day came when uh, it was determined this lioness had to go to a zoo. Had not been brought up in the wild, could not be reintroduced in the wild. And this is before Joy Adamson's experiments became well known that it could be done. And so this poor lioness that I'd named Vivian ended up in, in the Johannesburg Zoo. Um, I, I had visiting rights, uh, but um, so I, I still for years on, whenever I was in, in South Africa, I could visit my lioness. And uh, they'd let me into the enclosure and she had this lovely waterfall, um, rockery, um, kind of with a moat around its uh, area. So she wasn't behind bars and so on, but um, uh, it, it, it was distressing that she is limited. She got her own family, got her own cubs and all of that. And um, But yes, so Vivian, really, you can imagine when you've had a lion as a pet and the whole bed shakes when they purr and uh, when lion crawls to the bottom of the bed and starts licking the underside of your foot, and so it's your whole, and I'm super ticklish anyway, and uh, you know you just just want to uh, uh, immediately leap, but I couldn't because suddenly her claws came out on both sides, and so I couldn't move my foot or I'd lose it. And she's licking with a like wet sandpaper-like tongue on the underside of my uh, sole. It was it was an exquisite type of torture, um, but you know the the love of a of a big dangerous animal like uh, Vivian who. Even when a full grown-up uh, mother lioness um, never forgot me, always embraced me, you know, extraordinary. That's a wonderful story, Peter. That was really touching. And as I say, folks, the whole book is uh, amazing. It's um, I can't recommend it highly enough. And if you've listened to the shows with uh, Peter on here, then some of the information you will be aware of because he's talked about various... Uh, we've done shows on some of his missionary work and what have you. But to have it all in one place, and uh, as I say, I've just touched upon a couple of things I didn't know about him during this show, but there's also a great deal of material 
concerning the adventure type of the mission, how the missions was created, how Peter started off. All these different things uh, are in that book. I don't know as to it could have been any more comprehensive, but it's all so written in Peter's easy-to-understand style, which any of you who listen to the traditional Christian message on Sunday, I'm reading what Peter has written, and you can understand all of it clearly and concisely. Uh, He's a great writer, and I can't recommend the book highly enough. Now, Peter's going to be away for a few weeks. January is the busiest time of year for Frontline Fellowship. You're talking about the Great Commission course. There's another course that's running as well. Um, Peter... I'm going to hand over to you now to close out the show. Anything you'd like to say, and then please close out with uh, your website and how people can contact you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yes, we tend to start a year rolling. It's it's, uh, started as a selection training process for people interested in joining a mission, but it's gotten much bigger than that over the years. And so we've got people traveling from as far afield as America, five are coming from America. We've got... uh, uh, people sign up from Nigeria, Kenya, Ethiopia. Uh, but it's it's a missionary training program. The first week's a biblical worldview summit where we tackle biblical worldviews, uh, answer all the different attacks and issues of our day, everything from critical race theory uh, through to the LGBTQ and uh, uh, the Great Reset and all the rest of it uh, with positive biblical response. And then the Great Commission course continues on. So it's a three-week Great Commission course in total, a one-week biblical worldview summit. And uh, I'm running it, and I've been running these for many, many years, over 30 years, running Biblical Worldview Summits and uh, and these Great Commission courses. So that keeps me very busy because it's like from 6 in the morning till midnight, many times longer than that. And uh, it's body, mind, and spirit, very practical, hands-on outreaches, lectures, devotionals, obstacle crossing, team building, problem solving, um, mountain climbing, uh, Bible smuggling simulations and pitch dark in the forest and all sorts of things like that with hunter teams and, and smuggling teams. Um, the, the kind of things that we think will really help a person to be effective in missions and think outside the box. And I'm working on fin- finishing a new book called Great Commission Handbook, which um, is to help people make Christ's Great Commission their supreme ambition. Uh, lots of practicals, and that's the handbook for this coming um, uh, course and camp. Book that you're referring to, Frontline Behind Him Lines for Christ. I finished this last year uh, to mark our 40 years in, in ministry. 40 years in ministry, and it's about 480 pages um, and uh, over 440 pictures, um, uh, more than 40 chapters, and it's 40 years of Frontline. And, uh, you know, I just dipped around uh, because I've done uh, over 144 missions, and there's only about 27 missions. Uh, dealt with in this uh, book. So um, I, I picked uh, what I thought were the most remarkable and extraordinary, uh, but there were there were many others. I mean, there's lots of other things one could say, but I wanted to keep it interesting and not repetitive, and uh, in a sense, giving a feel for different fields, even though sometimes I've been back to the country many more times and what's referred to in the book. But to me, the the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and I didn't want to get tied up with chronology and so on. It was mostly about about the stories and the pictures and the events and the answers to prayer and uh, some of the amazing uh, uh, rescues that God gave getting me out of prison and when we were being bombed and uh, things that I think will will help people to understand what the persecuted church goes through. And so I think in a real sense, it's to speak up for the persecuted. We are making the book available through a print on demand, which you recommended to me through Lulu. That's very helpful as an ebook too. I still prefer hard copies, uh, but some people prefer ebook. But if they go into the Christian 
libertybooks.co.za website or frontlinemissionsa.org website. There'll be links to the book. And the links to the book has links to where you can get as an ebook or print on demand and, and so on. There's video promoting the book and you can see some of the situations and some of our – I've got some video footage of us uh, in the South African Army and the border war in Angola and some of the uh, imprisonment footage and uh, news headlines and what came over the TV when we were locked up. And so a few historic video clips in the video to help people see what the book's talking about. But the book's well illustrated to help folks understand. So if anyone's interested in in uh, another world, I was brought up in Rhodesia, uh, the old world. I still was brought up in the old, um, real, traditional English type of education. I think we were more English than English back in the 70s in Rhodesia. Uh, we were before politically correct. And, uh, you know, my second name's Christopher, so... Uh, my initials are PC, and the joke amongst friends around me is the only thing PC about Peter Hammond is his initials. And uh, I can guarantee nothing in the book is politically correct. And I'm sure it's going to trigger and upset some people on the other side. But it will uh, be, it'll give a lot of ammunition to those who are wanting to fight the new world order. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for this opportunity. Good to be on the program at the beginning of this new year, even though I'll only be back on it at the end of this month. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Yes, we're going to be recording because we record on the Tuesday, so that's the 31st. So we're going to air on the February the 2nd. So Peter will be back with us in February. But um, he knows that if he wants to... Uh, uh, I was going to tell him after the show, he's aware of this. If he ever needs to get information out, I will always broadcast information for him. I would tend to do that on the Limey show and if he ever needed to uh, do something quickly and get me to broadcast it I would find the time pre-record and broadcast that too but uh, we hope that that's not the case and um, the uh, both courses passed together very successfully uh, and with that said I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on a show entitled The Real Story of Why We Think As We Do I'll be back with you all tomorrow Peter, as I said, will be back with us next month. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. And bye for now.